This evening, we got some fairly shocking news. President Trump is asking a court to schedule one of his federal criminal trials before the November election. Specifically, Trump is requesting the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case to begin on August 12th. That is correct. Donald Trump asked for that trial to start just three months before the presidential election. Except that request may not exactly be what it sounds like. It could very well be a game of 3D chess, which, yeah, doesn't sound like something that Donald Trump plays all that often. But bear with me here. Trump pitching that August date could be a way of trying to block the other federal criminal case, the special counsel's much more serious federal election interference case, from going to trial before the election. Yesterday, we got that massive news that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear Trump's argument that those criminal trials in the D.C. case should be thrown out because of presidential immunity. But the court didn't schedule oral arguments on that case to start until the week of April 22nd. And because of that delay, even if the Supreme Court decides this case incredibly quickly, this election interference case most likely could not start until late July. Now, we know from forms that were sent to potential jurors last year that once that case starts, the court expects it will last approximately three months which means that the window in which the D.C. election interference case could take place and conclude before the November election, that window is very, very small. It is basically sometime between mid-July and mid-August. So Donald Trump asking for the judge in another case, the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, to put that trial on the calendar in mid-August seems like some 3D chess. Okay, maybe just chess. Right now, it really doesn't seem like there's enough room in the calendar to have both of these trials take place and conclude before the presidential election. Jack Smith's team thinks the Mar-a-Lago trial will last four to six weeks. And Trump's legal team thinks it will last eight to ten weeks. Now, whether it's four weeks or ten weeks, it could effectively block the judge in the federal election interference case from scheduling her trial in order to get a verdict before the November election. Or in other words, it could ice her. Ice her. That is what a person familiar with Trump's trial strategy told CNN earlier this week. NBC News has not independently verified that reporting, but earlier this week, that same person told CNN that as far as scheduling the Mar-a-Lago classified documents trial, the thing Trump is really thinking about is blocking the D.C. federal election case. The idea is to make it impossible for the judge in that case, Tanya Chutkin, to jam a trial down before the election by using things that are out of her control. Trump's team believes the Mar-a-Lago case, if it's moved to July, could box out Judge Chutkin from putting the federal election subversion case on the schedule. Sure looks like that's Trump's strategy here. Makes sense to me. At the end of the day, this is his classic delay strategy with a few more bells and whistles, admittedly. Instead, what actually confused me today was special counsel Jack Smith's strategy. Smith's team asked for the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case to start on July 8th. I don't know about you, but that also feels uncomfortably close to the very small window in which the special counsel's federal election interference case could start and finish before the November election. So what is the special counsel thinking here? Is there 
any order of operations? Are there any special legal avenues to expedite any of this? Something that would allow both of these cases to go to trial before November? Well, I have the perfect person to ask. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, MSNBC legal analyst and former FBI general counsel. Andrew, thank you for being here. I mean, literally uh, several times this evening, I said we just need to ask Weissman. So first, I guess let's start with the special counsel. I'm finding it. My heart sort of sank when I saw that they were requesting a July 8th trial date for Mar-a-Lago, because that just seems to foreclose the summer, right? Do you read it that way? So I feel like we need to have a chessboard um, right here. <laughs> How about checkers? That's like more my speed these um, days. I read it as Jack Smith reading the tea leaves with respect to the Supreme Court, uh, what they did just yesterday. So we're kind of in warp speed and he had to sort of react. So this is like dog years, you know, like yeah. everything's moving so quickly. And I think he realized that the odds of his getting a trial date in the D.C. case before September. Um, and it would it would take the stars and the moon and the, you know, and the earth to align and everything to go right for that case to be starting, you know, in September. In September. Uh, and and there's a chance it's it's much longer than that. Like yeah. it's a, it's a never. Um, and so I think this was a reality of, you know what, let's try and grab a, a bird in the hand. Uh, and so I think that was his thinking. Um, if you want, I can turn to Donald Trump. I want, wait, before we do that, I just, that is, um, I think there are a lot of people after the news yesterday that are thinking, okay, but if, can something be done here? But to have what feels almost like an admission on the part of the special counsel that, it's probably not going to happen. And even if it does happen, let's say in September, if they think it's going to take three months, it's not going to conclude before the election. Right. Do you, I mean, um, do you, do you, so you, I, I do ahead. think that he has an ability if, it. to slim it down. This is the slim to win, um, which is you know, standard procedure is, is you want to do that as a prosecutor, just put on what you need. Uh, we saw that, by the way, in, in the Trump organization trial, they really kept it tight. That's why I was really impressed. I was like, this is a good team. They just like what they need in and out, got a conviction. Um, So I can see Jack Smith trying to do that. But just remember, he's got to be thinking it's the start date that I'm concerned about. And um, you, you, if you just, I, I don't do math in public, but Neither you know, I. You know I, tried, to. I tried to add 88 to the various permutations. It's just not, it's just not looking good. And they're that's all assuming that the Supreme Court doesn't do things to even delay the case right. further and there are various outcomes sure. that it could. So I think this was I'm operating right. best case scenario here. Yeah, but but that's, you know, when you put your mind, put your head in sort of uh, Jack Smith is thinking, you know, he's got to now assess odds, not yeah. best yeah, case scenario. So he's thinking, you know what? I have, a, I have a very strong case in the classified documents case. I mean, he's got to be thinking, you know, this has jury appeal. It's not just the retention of the classified documents. It's two forms of obstruction. By all accounts, it looks like an incredibly strong case. We still have not heard any defense from the former president that passes the straight face test. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we'll see what happens at trial. So he has to be thinking, OK, Let's see if we can get that. I mean, just it's still an uphill battle because he's before Judge Cannon. 
Um, and there are many ways that that case can be delayed. But this was an issue of his request. Right. So in terms of what he's asking for, this seems eminently doable. Yeah. Um, the case has been pending for a long time. The classified documents issue is the only issue that would cause this to slow down. Um, that has largely been resolved. Um, and so I think he's Things right to do this. Moving. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Donald Trump's strategy here, yep. because the reporting is Donald Trump. See, it, it almost sounds like he thinks he has a a, a, a willing audience in Judge Cannon. And he does. And, he does. Uh, <laughs> it almost, almost, almost. It almost I'm, because he does. I'm giving you my opinion. Yes, I understand <laughs> that. Uh, the, the, the request from Trump's team sort of begins with all the reasons why Judge Cannon shouldn't really even schedule this before November. But, oh, right. if she has to. How about mid-August? Right. They give her a lot of runway to say, you know, there are, there, you could say the presidential immunity claim that we've launched in the Mar-a-Lago case. Why don't you wait until the Supreme Court figures that all out and, and, and not do anything until then? Right. So uh, I do think, you know, he as you it's important to note, he started by saying, I still don't want the trial in 2024. <laughs> um, but she had ordered that they give a trial date. So, you know, he actually gave a trial date, but it is the backup position. This is his ace in the hole. It's not I think it's not so much the sort of like, I don't want it in 2024 or OK, if my plan B is August, he's made an immunity um, argument. We've, you know, the same argument that's made in D.C. There's one minor difference. He wasn't president. He wasn't president. So his argument is, but I took the documents while I was president. Um, I have said that is like a bank robber saying, you know, I legally got the gun that I used to rob the bank. Right, right. Um, I was a customer of the bank when I went in and took the money. Right. I mean, it's just it's just such an irrelevancy. But he's got Judge Cannon. And so the question is whether Judge Cannon will sit on that, whether she will grant it or if she denies it and says, but it's not a frivolous argument, meaning all of these delays of appeal that we've seen in the D.C. case. Yeah. Donald Trump is going to try that, of course. I mean, Same road. Right, right. Back he's to going to try Court. it. Now, it's a much harder factual um, argument in, you know, and I, but, but that's not the issue. I mean, just remember, we were all sitting here going, he's arguing that he can order the SEAL Team 6 to kill a political opponent, and we're going, that is absolutely laughable, and here and yet, we are. Novel defense, says the Supreme Court. We need to weigh right. in on that. Exactly. Um, so I think he has, a, he has many ways, even if he were to get that August date, to later move it along, you know, to push it aside. Do you, I mean, give me the over-under on how optimistic you are about Judge Cannon. I mean, we sit here now and it's like the, you know, the, the possibilities for holding Trump accountable seem to be shrinking by the day, right? There's the Alvin Bragg case, which seems like that's sort of full steam ahead, but everything can I, can else. I, can I stop you there? Please, please there's stop the, me. There, there's the Alvin Bragg case. Yeah. That's, I, I am not optimistic um, on the DC case in light of what happened yesterday. I wish I, I yeah. were, but I, I really am not. Uh, I, I'm not optimistic in Florida, even though that one, if you look at it rationally, that should be able to go before the election. It's the biggest open issue there is Judge Cannon. We will have more, more data on this tomorrow because yes. the parties are going to be heard by... Um, by Judge Cannon, and she either will set a date or she will at least give some inclination as to what she's thinking. The reality is also, Andrew, I mean, we, there are so many reasons for delay here. Even if you get to the point of this, actually scheduling the trial, 
finding an impartial jury in this is not going to be without its challenges. There's already yep. fierce debates over the juror questionnaire and what question did you do you believe the election was stolen is some, a question that Jack Smith would like to have on the juror questionnaire. Understandably, yep. Trump's team's going to fight them tooth and nail every way, the, every step of the way. So uh, I have picked juries in high profile matters. I mean, nothing quite as high profile as this, but in the Enron cases and the special counsel case, um, yes, it's a challenge, but it can happen. Um, you know, you're not looking for, and the law does not require somebody who's never heard of the case. That would be hard. It would be impossible. And it also is completely inconsistent with our history when we had a, we were much smaller and people knew lots of people who were participants in the trial. So it's just required that somebody is going to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to take my oath of office as a juror seriously, and I'm going to decide this case based on the facts and the law. The biggest issue I see in that is the juror who wants on the jury yeah. um, on, for either side. You don't want somebody sneaking on who is who's going to say they're going to be fair and impartial, but is either going to only vote for the government or only vote for the defense. That's the biggest issue in a high profile matter, because usually people don't go, oh, you know, I can't wait today to get on the jury. You know, most people are like, how do I get off of a jury? Yeah. Well, it's a good thing neither one of these um, cases really stir uh, public emotion, right? Yes. They're just really, exactly. everybody's very level-headed about all of it. Um, Andrew Weissman, I'm going to say the harbinger of not great news, but still a wonderful yeah. guest to have on the show and an important nice legal mind, and I'm very grateful for your time and thoughts, my friend. My pleasure. We have a lot more to head tonight. President Biden went to the border today, and so did Donald Trump. We'll get into those dueling trips and alternate realities. But first... Trump is trying some very creative and probably highly illegal strategies to avoid paying his bills. Is any of it going to work? That's next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. There were a lot of warning signs, plenty of reasons why getting into business with Donald Trump was never going to end well for them. But if there was one moment where they should have walked away with their dignity intact and kept their distance from Donald Trump forever, it was probably this one. Andy, you're just being pounded on. You're being outdebated. I just don't want somebody running one of my companies that's going to get beaten up so badly you're fired. And I just have to do this. I have no choice. Wes, you're fired also. Andy Latinsky and Wes Moss, contestants on season two of The Apprentice. Both were fired by Trump and 
dramatic boardroom scenes full of melodramatic music and a whole lot of reaction shots. But Andy Linsky, Latinsky, and Wes Moss did not learn their lesson. Years later, after Trump became a twice-impeached former president who tried to steal an election, Andy Latinsky and Wes Moss decided to go into business with him. And boy, do they seem to regret it. These two former Apprentice contestants helped Trump build his right-wing Twitter knockoff social media company, Truth Social. But now they are suing Trump, claiming he's essentially trying to cheat them out of their share of that company. I mean, who could have seen that coming? That lawsuit isn't your typical where-are-they-now reality TV story. The lawsuit from those two former Apprentice stars is now getting in the way of Trump's latest attempt to escape accountability. Right now, Trump is on the hook for more than half a billion dollars from his civil fraud and defamation lawsuits. At the same time, Trump is in the middle of a big deal to try and effectively sell that Twitter knockoff for billions of dollars, the company that Andy Latinsky and Wes Moss helped Trump create. A lot of people think Trump could try and use the proceeds from that sale to pay his legal bills. That way, he could avoid having to sell off his precious real estate holdings and get Truth Social's investors to cover the cost of his misdeeds. But now the Washington Post reports that the lawsuit from those two former Apprentice stars is throwing a wrench in the deal. It's delaying Trump's access to those funds, which could be a real problem for Donald Trump, who sure seems these days like he does not have the money to pay the millions and millions in penalties that he owes. Last week, Trump tried to get the courts to delay his $83 million payment in the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit. Today, Carroll's attorney responded to that request for delay, saying he simply asks the court to trust me and offers the court filing equivalent of a paper napkin signed by the least trustworthy of borrowers. Trump is also trying to delay paying his New York civil fraud payment. This week, Trump and his lawyers asked the judge to allow him to pay only $100 million of the $450 million he owes in that case. Yesterday, the judge denied that request. In a two-line statement, he told Trump's attorneys, you have failed to explain, much less justify, any basis for delaying the payment. And scene. In the course of that back and forth yesterday, though, we learned about another possible attempt by Trump to avoid paying the piper. And it is a real doozy. In a legal filing yesterday, New York Attorney General Letitia James accused Trump of quietly trying to move his assets to Florida to avoid having them seized by the state of New York. Quoting from the New York Attorney General's office, After the court issued its February 16th order, defendants announced for the first time that various Trump organization entities operating in New York are allegedly now located in Florida. Two of the companies that were part of that lawsuit, DJT Holdings LLC and DJT Holdings Managing Member LLC, have already been relocated to Florida. Now, as of the year 2023, both of those companies were still located in New York. So did Trump move those companies to Florida after the attorney general brought a lawsuit against Trump and those companies? I mean, that would be one creative way to get out of paying any penalties in the case. And it sounds like the court was concerned that Trump would do something exactly like that, which is why at the very beginning of this case, the judge here 
barred Trump from moving his assets out of the state. Now, Donald Trump is doing everything in his power to avoid accountability in his civil and criminal trials. And yes, in some cases, it is working. Yesterday, of course, he managed to get the conservative majority on the Supreme Court to delay his case in the D.C. election interference trial well into the future. His Georgia election interference cases have been successively stalled as well. We don't know what's happening in Mar-a-Lago, but the civil cases against Trump, the ones from the New York Attorney General and from writer E. Jean Carroll, those have been the only cases so far where Trump has really had to face justice. Now he's making these last-ditch efforts to avoid having to pay up. And the question is, will Trump be able to escape accountability here as well? We're going to talk about that coming right up. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Okay, here's a quote from the New York Attorney General's latest filing in Trump's civil fraud case. Contrary to defendants' argument, there is substantial risk that defendants will attempt to evade enforcement of the judgment or make enforcement more difficult following appeal. Defendants have already, during this action, surreptitiously transferred $40 million from their accounts without disclosing the transfer to the monitor in violation of Supreme Court's orders. The New York Attorney General notes that Donald Trump secretly moved $40 million out of his accounts right in the middle of his civil fraud trial. And now she's accusing Trump of secretly moving his companies to Florida to avoid accountability. Is Donald Trump trying to hide his assets to avoid paying what he owes? If he is, who will stop him? Joining me now is Christy Greenberg, former federal prosecutor who served for over a decade in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. Christy, thanks for being here. I, I, I find this like I had to put my eyes back in my head. The idea that two of the companies that are named in this civil fraud lawsuit, Trump has suddenly moved to the state of Florida. First of all, isn't there someone who's like overseeing the Trump organization right now? And should she not have been aware or been made aware that this kind of thing was happening? Right. So under the court's orders, he has to notify the independent monitor, former judge Barbara Jones, of any kind of movement of assets or any changes to those entities, certainly changing the address. Well, where? what about the banks? Where are the accounts that are associated with those entities? She needs to be tracking all of that. I mean, and the fact that he, they, they put this in in a letter. Yeah. Like they kind of, yeah, like you got some address. 
Where is wrong? You got it yeah, wrong. Yeah, I got some like, addresses no, wrong. You didn't tell them. You didn't tell the New York AG. You didn't tell the monitor who's supposed to be your babysitter and make sure that, that you know, you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And you didn't disclose any of it. So I, it, it's shady. They're clearly trying to make some moves here where they can move money and have the monitor not be able to track it. That seems to be what's going on here. I want to uh, bring in, we now have his his shot up, uh, the the author of uh, the the, uh, the Daily Beast story that broke a lot of this, Jose Palieri, political investigations reporter for the Daily Beast. Jose, thanks for um, joining me. If you could, can you explain like the indications we have right now and, and the timing about whether Donald Trump is, in fact, trying to move organizations that are subjects of this fraud trial out of state to avoid having to pay penalties? Can you talk a little bit more about the, the sort of evidence that that is at hand? Sure. So, I mean, look, like you said, all we know now is that they've had these changes of addresses. And the person who should be first to know would be Barbara Jones, that former federal judge who is the monitor over the company. She's been babysitting the company for over a year now. And this was exactly why she was put in place. I mean, Justice Ngoran, who is the trial judge, knew that this kind of thing could happen. That's why a little over a year ago, he ordered this monitor to be put in place so that the Trumps could not move assets out of the state, which was a concern from the beginning. And so with this change of address, we're sort of seeing hints at that. I mean, we knew that Donald Trump feared having to pay this amount of money, and especially when he's going through such a big cash crunch now. Let's remember that the $83 million he has to pay up very quickly to E. Jean Carroll for losing the rape defamation case in January, it's coming due. And this is a really bad storm for him. And so the fact that they've changed these addresses is certainly suspicious. The fact that they only alerted the court in a letter saying, oh, by the way, you've, you know, these addresses are incorrect. That's sort of a backdoor way to get into this. And it's why the AG in New York is calling them out on this. What's interesting is going to be how far this goes, because at this point, Trump's legal team has to answer some serious questions from the judge. And the appellate court isn't going to play this game either. I mean, they already issued a temporary stay so that this can be fought on appeal, but they chose not to hit the pause button on him paying this money. So at this point, he's not in a position where he's supposed to be moving assets. He's actually in the position where he needs to pay up real soon. And so we'll get answers pretty soon. But the fact that they did it this way at this hour after they were told to pay is certainly raising red flags. Yeah. I mean, Christy, what are the options here? If someone, I mean, first of all, legally speaking, if, if DJT Holdings, Donald J. Trump Holdings moves to Florida and doesn't want to pay the bill, so to speak, what are the sort of legal implications of that? Like, what can be done? Does Ron DeSantis have to step in? I'm kidding. Well, I mean, again, these assets, if you can trace them, if you know where the money is, you can look to seize them. There are there are mechanisms that are in place for the New York AG to try to do that. The issue is once it moves to Florida, where else does it go? Is it now going overseas? Like, is it changing entities again? Like, once you start layering here, um, I mean, and again, we don't know that he's doing that. But once you start moving and you're not making the notifications, it certainly makes it easier for those kinds of transactions to happen and it to be harder to trace the money and then to be able to seize it if you need to. Jose, I mean, the AG can say don't do this. The judge can say don't do this. But if Donald Trump's going to do it anyway, I wonder what sort of legal recourse exists. Does he get slapped with more? I mean, what is what happens now if, in fact, he is moving his businesses out of the state to avoid having to pay penalties? 
this could be a very juicy conversation because the fact of the matter is the deadline is around the corner, right? Sometime in mid-March, the AG can go ahead and ask Justice Ngoran for the ability to put, for, for her to forcibly seize property. I mean, he can base whatever company he wants elsewhere. Uh, Trump Tower isn't moving. It is right. stuck right in Manhattan. And so she can go ahead and start seizing that. And there are, someone brought this up to me the other day, uh, there are poundage fees that will be due if she has to get, for example, the the sheriff involved. We never talk about the sheriff in New York City, but uh, the sheriff would become involved and they can take up to 5% of the total. What's 5% of half a billion dollars with increasing interest every single day? I mean, there's no way he can truly escape this. And he also, I mean, it's, it's a question as to whether or not he wants to suffer the embarrassment of having somebody put a padlock on that tower. But re realistically, though, he is running for president right now. He is under intense scrutiny. He's having to file uh, disclosure forms with the federal government about what he owns and where it is. And so when we did this story, one of the first things I looked at was, well, wait a minute, when did those addresses change? And so I looked up the disclosure forms that he had filed, and those two entities always said they were in New York until ding, ding, ding. Curiously, sometime last year in August, they no longer listed an address. Now they just listed the assets. And so he is under scrutiny. It's not like he can really hide this stuff because he's going to have to report it to the federal government anyway as he runs for office. And so we'll all know where these things generally are. And like I said, 40 Wall Street in, in lower Manhattan, that's yeah. not moving either. And these are true, real assets that the AG can move on. It's just a matter of time. I mean, what's interesting about the timing here is that this is all going to happen in mid-March when, just as you recall, this is when the DA's office in Manhattan, a whole other law enforcement yes. office, is going to drag him into court for the start of his criminal trial, the first one ever involving a former president. And so he's he's got his hands full. He doesn't really have the time or even the resources or even the legal team to be playing these kinds of games at this juncture. Yeah, Chrissy, when we talk about the bills being paid here, I mean, Jose makes a very... <laughs> Quite obvious, but I didn't think of it myself, point that you can't move 40 Wall Street. So A.G. James can seize 40 Wall Street if it comes down to it, right, if his bad behavior is to that degree. But I do wonder, it seems like he's trying to push off the liquidation of his real estate assets as the, the, the sort of plan D in all of this. There is this potential deal with his social media company that could come through and, and afford him maybe as much as $4 billion dollars. That doesn't happen until March 22nd, I think, at the earliest. The bill is due, I believe, March 16th. Right. And the bill is now $550 billion. What is, is there record, does he get a grace period in any of this if he's showing, I mean, and, and if he does, how much does bad behavior like moving assets to Florida cut in on that grace period? Well, so right now he's got 30 days, which brings us to mid-March. And this is just so that he's able to appeal. Right. right. This is that's all we're looking at right now is whether or not he needs to pay the money to be able to file his appeal. And there is no wiggle room there in the law. There is no, well, I get a grace period. Well, I can give you part of it. I can pay you 25 cents on the dollar. Like, no, you have to pay the full amount. You actually have to pay more than the yes. full amount. So, um, yeah, he, he, there's no way for him to get out of this. If he wants to appeal, this is the deadline. He's got to meet it. Do you think um, the attempt to stave off payment in the E. Jean Carroll case, <laughs> first of all, I mean, Robbie Kaplan, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, had a field day calling him the least trustworthy. This is like a paper napkin signed, yours truly, Donald <laughs> Trump. It's an IOU. I promise I'm going to pay it. I mean, 
What are these attempts? That's I mean, no judge is going to take that. Is this just a delay? Tech? I'm, I'm just having a hard time understanding the legal utility of that. Yeah. I mean, in that case, his he didn't even put forth any evidence to say, like, I want to secure it at all. Like, this is just I'm asking for a stay. I don't want to put up anything. And by the way, I'm not going to provide any evidence about where my assets are, what kind of debt I have, you know, any information about his finances when he was just convicted of financial Wait, fraud. He doesn't mention the five hundred million dollar penalty he has to pay in his, I guess, effectively statement of financial condition in this. Right. Well, Robbie Kaplan made sure to mention that in her papers. (laughs) It is just, I mean, the obfuscation and the the tantrums. uh, And yet sometimes it works for him. We'll see what happens. Christy Greenberg, Jose Palieri, thank you guys so much for your time. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Still ahead this evening, it was a tale of two cities, two border visits, and two starkly different visions for this country. But which one will prevail in November, and what will it mean for democracy? That's ahead. Stay with us. Biden on Thursday, a cynical, sick political stunt by the president, and frankly, it is beyond disgraceful. Uh, We will be at the border with President Trump on Thursday. That was Fox's Sean Hannity earlier this week describing Donald Trump and President Biden's dueling border visits today. And Sean Hannity is right. One of those visits really was a cynical political stunt. But it wasn't President Biden's. This afternoon, Trump toured the city of Eagle Pass, Texas, and he was led by the Texas National Guard. Meanwhile, at almost the exact same time, President Biden toured Brownsville, Texas, accompanied by Customs and Border Patrol agents, or CPB, CBP. While these two tours may look somewhat similar, there is at least one key difference. Customs and Border Patrol is actually in charge of border security. The Texas National Guard, on the other hand, is not. So Trump is effectively just cosplaying here. And when it came to their actual speeches, Trump and Biden could not have been more different. President Biden talked about the need for more immigration judges to clear the asylum backlog. He proposed more overtime for CBP officers, more machines to detect fentanyl, and more bipartisan compromise. He talked about real, tangible policy. He offered possible solutions. And then there was Donald Trump. Now the United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of uh, vicious violation to our country. It's migrant crime. We call it Biden migrant crime. Now, I should stop to say that the United States is not, in fact, being overrun by migrant crime. Migrants are actually much less likely to commit crimes than U.S. citizens are. But if you watch Fox News these days or if you listen to Republicans, you would not know that. You would probably think quite the opposite. And not only does the right not seem to be worried about the impact this kind of scapegoating has on migrants, as it turns out, conservatives don't actually want to fix anything when it comes to the border. Remember back in January, just two months ago, when Republican Speaker of the House Mike Johnson and 60 of his Republican colleagues made their own trek down to Eagle Pass. Do you remember that? They claimed they were there to demand legislative action on stricter border policies. And then just one month later, they tanked that legislation all by themselves. They specifically killed their own bipartisan bill because Donald Trump asked them to. 
because Donald Trump doesn't actually want the immigration system fixed. He wants it to be broken so that he can run on it. Here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? We're going to talk about what is actually happening in the border and what this all means in the November election right after this break. They're coming from jails and they're coming from prisons and they're coming from mental institutions and they're coming from insane asylums and they're terrorists. They're being led into our our country. Now the United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of a vicious violation to our country. It's migrant crime. That was Donald Trump today in the border city of Eagle Pass, Texas, trying out a new catchphrase, Biden migrant crime. As he edges towards a general election, Trump is doubling down on his efforts to tie President Biden to a purported migrant crime wave, a migrant crime wave which does not appear to exist. A recent NBC News review of 2024 crime data from cities targeted by Texas's Operation Lone Star that's the program that transports migrants from the border to major cities across the country. A review of that data shows that overall crime levels actually dropped in the cities that have received the most migrants. That would be cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, Denver, New York, and Los Angeles. Now, Trump may call it a vicious violation to our country, but none of that appears to be true. Don't expect him to stop saying it, though. Joining me now to discuss this is Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, Democrat from the great state of Nevada. Senator, it's great to see you. Um, thanks for joining the program on this really important you know, day, this pivotal moment as we talk about immigration in this country. I first got to ask you what you think of the phrase Biden migrant crime. Well, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's typical what former President Trump has always done, even in 2016. Uh, to make up information, lies, talk about what's happening at the border when it's really not. And, and Alex, I think that's why it's important for people to really know the facts. And it was important for me, for that reason, to go down to the border. I, I went to the Tucson region. I was at Nogales. I was the Ajo Station, Lukeville, uh, to talk with the Border Patrol agents and the customs agents. The same thing that that President uh, Biden has just done. And if you actually sit and talk to the agents on the border, you will learn that uh, they need more resources. They're underwhelmed, right? And they're understaffed. They're overwhelmed. They, there's so much happening there. And for that reason, I supported that bipartisan uh, legislation that you talked about, the Border Security Act, because it had all of the information in there, all the resources that we needed to secure the border. And it's why President Biden worked and his administration worked with the senators, both Republican, independent and Democrats, to come to that compromise for that strong border security. It was tough. It was fair. It was really what our border security uh, wanted and needed at that border. That's why the, the Border Patrol uh, Association, the union, supports it. That's why so many came out and said, yeah, th- this is what we need. But on the other side of it, you have President, former President Trump, who is all about misinformations. And as you've pointed out, 
doesn't want to really solve the problem. He just wants to exploit it for political gain. It is typical of his M.O. That's how he's always operated. That's how he will continue to operate. Yeah, I, I, I do wonder, though, if you think in some ways Trump has managed to move the, the goalposts here a little bit and, and has entreated Democrats to join him in, in effectively, if not outright vilifying migrants. But there, it seems like in all the talk of locking down the border, there's been something lost in terms of understanding the humanity of these people. I mean, there are headlines about children sheltering in porta potties uh, down at the border. They have they're suffering from hypothermia. They're hungry. I think starvation is is being used uh, in some cases. These are human beings who are a vital part of the American economy. And I wonder if you think Democrats are forcefully enough advocating on their mere presence in the United States, understanding that the system by which they come is broken, but but not to lose sight of the fact that they are important to this country and they are our fellow humans. Well, Alex, you're right. A couple of things here, right? We we want to secure the border. We need to make sure there's resources there. There's there's fentanyl coming across the border. There's illicit drugs that we need to stop. They're coming into my community in Nevada. They're coming across the country. Uh, there's human trafficking that's happening. But yes, we also need a fair and orderly process for immigrants who are coming to the border. And now we're seeing these surges of immigrants, and we need to make sure we're addressing that. Uh, and what their needs are, and actually processing them much faster. That's why we need more resources, more immigration judges, more asylum officers. We want to process them faster to see if there is a credible fear um, allegation, whether that's true or not, or are they are, are they really migrants coming for uh, an opportunity to succeed? And I will say this, uh, what what you have seen and the data has shown that most of the migrants that we have seen coming across the border are just that. They want an opportunity to American dream or they're p- being persecuted in their country, uh, 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 you know, with their uh, lives. Um, there's concerns uh, and uh, for their families. That's why they are making that trek thousands of miles and paying these cartels to try to get to a better life for their families. We can't lose sight of that. Uh, yeah. I, but we also but we also have to make sure we secure that border because there is a lot of, of, of the illicit drugs and human trafficking and things that are happening. So but we can do both. We can we ha- we can still have our fa- our values and principles and have a fair and orderly process at the border. That is something that I am proud as an American that that's what this is about. But there's a role for Congress to play in this, along with the administration. And we have to be a part of it. Unfortunately, my Republican colleagues don't want to be a part of it, right? Some of them are just listening to uh, former President Trump and doing his bidding and not solving this problem. Yeah, I guess respectfully, I I hear a lot more from both sides about fentanyl and human trafficking than I do the statistic that crime levels are dropping in the cities that receive the most migrants in Texas. And, and I think that that, you know, if we talk about the long term effects here, I mean, 57 percent of Americans believe the large number of migrants seeking to enter the country is going to lead to more crime. Setting aside, you know, the, the, the importance of correcting that, that is also very politically advantageous for Republicans, for, for the American public to believe that. And I wonder, do Democrats have a plan for pushing back on that narrative? Well, let me let me just say that that's the fear mongering that is out there. There's so much of it that the Republicans and particularly former 
President Trump. That's what they—it's emotional fear-mongering, right? They'd rather get people to the polls based on their emotion than the truth. So they don't care uh, what they say. And it is important for Democrats to take the data and the truth and push it out there and make sure we're talking about and educating our voters. That's what I have done in the state of Nevada. There is a way to talk about the border and say, we want to secure the border and make sure we're making our communities safe. But at the same time, fix a broken immigration system. We, we still have dreamers in this community, in my community, and their families that should be on a pathway to citizenship. We have, still have TPS recipients who want to work in this country. Uh, they are not criminals. They are hardworking. They want to be a part of this American dream. So we should be working on their behalf as well. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto from Nevada, really, really appreciate your perspective on this. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. That is our show for this evening.